So the Holy Spirit has fallen in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and the uh, gathering of apostles and disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, speak in tongues, and then that long list of people from different countries, uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, verse 9, uh, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God, so that they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this be? So we then talked about all of the different ramifications there, and we even touched on verse 13. Others mocking said, they are full of new, new wine. They're drunk. And we talked about the fact that at this day and age, uh, Peter answers them in this whole discussion, saying it's not possible that they would be drunk because it's only 9 a.m., the third hour. Um, point being that they uh, didn't uh, ferment wine and distill it the same way that we do today. Uh, so in that culture, wine was far less potent. And then secondly, uh, the wine that was served by uh, good religious Jews would have been table wine, which would be uh, that lower grade wine mixed 50-50 water and the wine. So it was just some flavor and the alcohol content in it kept the bacteria for from growing inside the water. Um, uh, if you were intending to get drunk on that table wine, um, you're, you're going to have a, a lot of work ahead of you uh, to do that, and, and especially if you're going to do it before 9 a.m. Okay, so that's exactly what Peter is saying: is it's not, it's not even really possible uh, to do that. And uh, keep that in mind when people want to throw around that idea. Well, Jesus drank wine; yeah, he did drink wine, uh, but as it would have been prescribed religiously uh, within the culture. Jesus was not a drunkard, okay? Well, he hung out with the drunkards, right, like he still does. He's trying to drag us out of our drunkenness into sobriety, right? You know, uh, you know the, the example I gave, the woman caught in the act of adultery, a local minister years ago in the paper, you know, saying, well, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Well, yeah, you stopped at the wrong point in the verse because the very next thing is he says, go and sin no more. Okay, Jesus is, is not at all endorsing drunkenness. Uh, the church does weird things with this. I, I had a friend years ago who was trying to get me to go to his church because they were, you know, according to him and their teachers, they were all being filled with the Holy Spirit and becoming drunk. Drunk in the Holy Spirit was how they referred to it. Uh, shameful, disgraceful. I, I mean, definitely sacrilegious, possibly even blasphemous, uh, you know, to say such a thing. A couple proof texts, specifically Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, dissipation, important. Uh, lots of different ways to illustrate that, but um, have you had hearing tests where, uh, you know, the doctor takes the a tuning fork and he strikes it and then he puts it up next to your ear and you hear the tone 
but it's fading away. Very strong at first, and then it fades off. And if you listen through that whole process, it just continues to dissipate, right? Drunkenness, dissipation, right? Everything just fades away, you know? Your, your marriage, your life, your money, your jobs all just dissolve before your very eyes, Right, and that the Lord is saying that, right? He He wants us to be fruitful, to be built up, to grow, to become stronger, to become more fruitful. He wants our marriages to be stronger ten years later, not weaker. He wants our finances to be more secure ten years later, not lesser. Right? Even if we have the same amount of money, He wants to teach us how to use it better. Right? He doesn't promise us wealth and prosperity, but He promises us growth, maturity, and 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 prosperity in the spirit. So do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled in contrast instead of be filled with the Holy Spirit. The exact opposite. Drunkenness, depletion, right? Spirit, growth, right? Filling, fulfillment is the opposite of what's being described there. I'll give you another one. It's a, a series of verses from Galatians chapter 5. You should know it very well. Verses 19 through 25. Paul says, uh, now the works of the flesh are evident. And that's that's like obvious, you know, and plain as the nose on your face, we might say, those sorts of things. It's, it's not something you have to wonder about. The works of the flesh are easy to see. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness. And that's the idea of sexual uncleanness. Lewdness also pertaining to the sexual. Then idolatry. Sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, fights and deterioration of relationships, heresies, envy, murders, and there it is, drunkenness. That's a work of the flesh. Well, how can you be filled with the Spirit and simultaneously have a work of the flesh? Involved in your life. So the spirit, so wait a minute. The work of the flesh produces drunkenness, the desire for drunkenness. And yet, you know, there, there are those within the church that are saying, oh, now that I'm filled with the spirit, I am drunk. Do you see the contradiction? Do you see how wrong this is? I say blasphemous to say such a thing. The Holy Spirit, right, is going to look, this may you take this or leave it, whatever you want to do. Children spinning around in a circle and enjoying that altered state of consciousness is not much different than drunkenness or getting high or, you know, whatever other form of altered state you enjoy. You know, if you got the one kid on the playground that all he wants to do is spin, you might want to have a conversation with him. Seriously, about what's going on in his heart that he enjoys, right? Have, have you not seen children spin themselves until they're sick? I, I've seen it. Uh, you know, th this thing comes naturally from the flesh. You say, oh, well, they're kids. Right. Have you ever seen a child with murder in their heart? I have. They freak me right out. You know, take something away from them, you know, and the demon just uh, suddenly appears. Bead red, shaking all over, veins standing out of their neck. They're just screaming one word, mine! You know, just, it's, they'll show you just how evil they can be. 
in the moment. It's of the flesh, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, our midweek study in First John, uh, you know, walking in the light as he is in the light, practicing, practicing, uh, you know, getting better and better at doing it. You know, learning, learning how to drink and still drive home. Right? You know, learning where the cutoff point is. You're getting better at it. You know, you're bombed out of your mind, but you're, you've learned how to drive. You know, where the cutoff, some of us have never learned where the cutoff was. We just drove anyway, you know. But the practice, right? Oh, listen, as a Christian, no encouragement here towards sin. You may stumble into sin, and you should absolutely hate it. And you should seek the help of your brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit confession, the leadership the Lord's putting in your life, to be immediately pulled out of that. To repent, to change your mind, change your practice, go the other direction. Right? You don't, you, as a Christian, you especially don't want to practice sin. Why? Because you're practicing how to be a better and better hypocrite all the time. How do I hide this? How do I keep this to myself? How do I make sure nobody knows? That's no, those aren't lessons you want to learn. Those are extremely dangerous things to incorporate into your life. So this idea here, all of these things, you know, we used to practice getting better and better at. Uh, those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. End of discussion. You participate in these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In contrast, <clears throat> but the fruit of the Spirit, singular, right, is love. Go no further, because everything else we're going to read in just a moment are adjectives of love. Okay? The fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. Number one, for the Lord your God, with all of your heart, soul, and mind, which will automatically, if you truly love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and you grow in that, if you practice that more and more every day, if you are constantly crucifying the flesh, if you are seeking to grow in your relationship with Christ, you will automatically love your neighbor as yourself. If you have a proper relationship with the Lord, it will be incredibly difficult to have the wrong attitude toward your spouse, toward your children, toward your boss, right? Toward your employees, toward your clients, towards the clerk at the store, right? When you, when you are walking in the Spirit, when you are in love with God, when you live that way, when you function that way, then the, the outpouring, the outcropping, outgrowth is love. Love then has all of these descriptions. Joy. Peace. This is significant to the issue of drunkenness. It's significant to know when am I walking in the spirit and when am I in the flesh? 
Oh, I got up this morning at 4 a.m. and I just read my Bible and I was so, and listened to all the music I wanted to and I was just right in tune with God. And then, then my spouse got up and now I'm in a full-blown rage. I don't think you're in the spirit. I don't think that the time you spent in your devotions, right, your, your devotion to Christ should should move your spirit over to where it belongs. You should be filled with joy, peace, long-suffering, meaning just like it sounds, you can suffer terrible things for a long time. Children come in screaming and you explode instantly. I was having my devotions. You know, that's, you know, I mean, what's going on? What's going on? I mean, really, <clears throat> I mean, let's break that down for a minute. I was being very self-indulgent in my alone time as I was gaining superficial knowledge that I have not applied at all to myself so that I can then lord that knowledge over everyone else. Does this, does this sound like devotions? Has my relationship with Christ in those moments drawn me deeper into fellowship with him, calmed and quelled the flesh within me so that I can function through the day, right? Maybe you've actually hit those moments only a few times. Hopefully it's all the time, but those moments where you were with the Lord and it ministered to you in such a, that's available to us every day. All day. This is walking in the Spirit. This is being filled with the Spirit. Where somebody comes over and just jams on your flesh button and you're like, yeah, normally that would bug me. <clears throat> and I can see what you're trying to do. Maybe it's not even you. Maybe it's the devil himself, you know, or whatever minions have been assigned to me. Just poking me as hard as he can. And I can feel my flesh wanting to rise up. But I've spent the time in love with my father. And, and now he has control. He's given me that control to where I don't react this way. You know, crucifying the flesh, right? Um, I think it was Spurgeon that said dead men don't wrestle. Right? There's not going to be any fight. If you've crucified the flesh and it's dead, even if you, right? Because he said you had to do it daily. Take up your cross daily. And, you know, and in that process of dying to the flesh, we're able to live in the Spirit. So I'm, I'm still contrasting this just to close this out. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And there it is, self-control. Self-control. The, the control that would say, no, I shouldn't be involved in drunkenness. That I don't need to, right? What is drunkenness? A loss of control, right? I'm, I'm being intoxicated, and now I've, I've lost control of my faculties to whatever degree, in whatever way. You know, the spectrum is wide. Uh, walking in the Spirit brings that thing down to self-control. Against such things there are no law. Notice this. And those who are Christ's, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They have. 
You haven't? Well, then the question is, are you Christ's? Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions. If you belong to him, then this continuous process has to go on all of the time. All of the time. We have to put these things to death. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. You know, the functionality is what's being said. You can't just say, oh, I'm deeply in the spirit. You know, simultaneously living in sin. If you are, if you are living in the spirit, then you will walk in the spirit. You're going to have that life continuous. So continuing uh, from there, back in Acts chapter 2, looking at verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, no, Peter's not speaking in tongues now. Peter is speaking, well, wait a minute. Then how does everyone hear and understand him? Because before they were speaking in tongues and everyone said, right, uh, you know, they, they are bilingual. They're Jewish in their religion and therefore they learn the language and they've come to Israel. What, you know, what is that whole thing? You know, what do they call a person that can speak three languages? Trilingual. What do they speak, call a person who can speak two languages? Bilingual. What do they call a person who can speak one language? American. Right. You know, so we're, we're the ones that, that speak one. You go anywhere else in the world and people speak multiple languages. Okay, we, we are singular in that way. We, we speak one language. Okay, and, and there are benefits, and then there are, you know, those things that detract. The, the issue is here, Peter is speaking to a crowd that has come to Israel to, to worship the Lord from all over the world. What caught their attention is the, the sound like a mighty rushing wind. And they go to the location, and when they arrive there, all these individuals are speaking in all of these languages, and they're able to pick out uh, that person's mind. These guys are all Galileans. You know, they, they, they are as, however you want to put it, they are down east as it comes. They are redneck as it comes. They are hillbilly hick as it comes. And yet they are speaking fluently in our dialect. They, they actually are all the way down to they have, you know, our, uh, you know, particulars of, of dialect in there. They have, no, like, no accent tainting their speech. So they're stunned by this, and it, it attracts their attention, and now Peter has the mic. Now Peter has the opportunity to speak to them. Standing up, raised his voice, said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, and here it is, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, for the group that wants to say the gifts have been done away with, they have ceased, right? And they, they want to go and look at 1 Corinthians and they want to say here, you know, you have... Uh, the tongue ceasing, and we've already delved into all of that. The points that I want to make within this is he's going to tell us this is what Joel said about the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. I'm going to read the whole thing, but I just want to jump down to verse 19 uh, where it says, you know, there will be these signs, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Uh, so have those things happened yet? No. 
So the pouring out of the Spirit is going to continue through that time. That's still ahead of us. Okay, I'll get one more time. The shenanigans that have gone on within the church, let's just say it outright, the things done improperly by the church have caused people to shun the gifts and say they are not for today. It's the abuses that have caused people to say that. Imagine that if 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 the whole church right there in 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, millennia ago, got that letter from Paul, read it and went, whoa, we, we our doctrines off. We need to correct everything. And, and they then taught and instructed the church from that point forward. If all through the millennia, the church had only done what was prescribed by the scripture properly, today people would embrace the gifts. There wouldn't be all of this confusion. My insistence is that the devil has joined the church and caused misbehaviors and rebellions and acting out in the flesh so that now everybody's confused about well, where, do, where, do the, you know, where does the fake stuff end and the real stuff begin? Where, where is the Holy Spirit uh, versus people trying to just get attention uh, for themselves? significant and important so to read the whole thing he says this is what was spoken by the prophet joel and in verse 17 he quotes joel it shall come to pass in the last days says god that i will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams so that's how you know if you're younger or you're old you know, if, you, if you're if you're uh, seeing visions, uh, then you're young. If you are dreaming dreams, then you are old. Um, gonna pour out His Spirit on all flesh, right? Not not that everybody is gonna have the Holy Spirit and be capable of these things, which seems to be what people are implying more and more all the time. You know, oh, our religion has prophets. You know, Buddhism has prophets, and Islam has prophets, and no, they don't. You know, not according to the Scripture. Not according to God. He alone imparts prophecy to his servants. Uh, so there's something to debate there. The idea is it's available to all flesh. He pours it out in such a way that if you will surrender yourself to the Lord, you can experience these things. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Pause right there. I've touched on it a little bit through the gifts of prophecy where there are those that say women have to keep silent in the church. And I gave the explanation of the fact that the church was divided so that the men sat on one side, the women sat on the other. And so if that's being the case, uh, you know, he specifically says, let them keep silent in the church and ask their husbands at home and they will be instructed by their husbands. We derive from that the women sitting on one side of the church are asking questions during the middle of the service across to the men on the other side. You know, Harold, what did he mean by that? Now, and they're talking. They're like, he's, Harold's answering. You know, he, he, Paul is saying, you need to be quiet. There should be no disruption in the congregational meeting of the church. You want to learn something? Uh, save the question. Go home and ask that question. I draw that point up here because we get very specific instructions about how women can speak in the church, how they can pray in the church. Here, right, even your maidservants shall prophesy. 
right? There, there we have Stephen's daughters listed as prophetesses, right? So, so there are those allowance. More than anything, he encourages the women to be in submission to the authorities within the church. That the, the leadership of the church should, should be given the respect due them. The reason he has to address that, right, is because many of these, especially in Corinth, that are coming into the church are coming out of uh, prostitution where they were, pro they were priestess in the temple of Diana and Aphrodite and uh, you know several other such. So they come into the church acting like, well, I can be a priest. I was a priest over there at that temple, and now I'm here in Christianity, and I'll be a priest over here too. And they're running their mouths, and they're saying things contradictory to the Scripture and to the Holy Spirit, and Paul gives great correction in that. Even the point of growing their hair out long had to do with the fact that they shaved their heads bald and they wore different wigs each day because they sold themselves to the same men day after day so they would look like a different woman. So they're being abused and mistreated by men. Now they are converted to Christianity. They come into the church and they have bald heads, which is a clear indication that they are prostitutes and priestess from the temple of Diana and Aphrodite, and now they're saying things that are contradictory to the scripture. Paul is saying, look, <clears throat> if a woman truly has been converted, even from that depth of sin, she should demonstrate that she's ashamed of her history, ashamed of her conduct, and that she covers her head until her hair grows out. A, a sign to everyone that, I have the authority of the church over me. I, I'm not here as a rebel. I'm not here ripping off my wig, you know, shouting things that are blasphemous or sacrilegious in the church. I'm, I'm coming here and I'm demonstrating my submission. So when you look into the history and the backstory behind these things, you discover that now everything that I just sort of dumped out in this discussion, think about all the different ways the church is abusing those things in the church today. Women can't speak. Women got to roll their hair out. Women got to be in submission to men. Women got to, women got to, you know, it's, it's sexist. It's abusive is what we're looking at, right? Paul tells us to be in submission, men and women, to be in submission to one another, right? He even goes as far as to say that in Christ, there is neither male nor female. So, so here, uh, you know, I know I'm popping that point up, but uh, you know, the the um, men servants and your maid servants will pour my spirit uh, in those days uh, on them. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood. You know, I. I I'm kind of disheartened with the way people try to reinterpret things that are going on around us. You know, oh, this satellite, that's, you know, clearly the angel that's going to proclaim the gospel. And, you know, they get all, so send your money in now. You know, they, they, they got all kinds of weird things that they do to try to sort of naturalize the supernatural. Okay, uh, the, you know, the, the sun uh, being darkened, the moon uh, being turned into blood. Sun's still burning off 120 tons of mass a second. So at some point, uh, things are going to slow down. You know what I'm saying? 
And it does happen suddenly in examining other stars. As they burn off their fuel source, they suddenly drop dramatically in temperature and change. The chemistry changes, the fuel burns differently, and suddenly you're receiving light of a different temperature and a different color uh, you know, from that star. Uh, it stands to reason that at some point in the future, our sun is going to take a dramatic twist. It's going to change, as God has predicted. There is an interesting point of study. You can find this in several different um, publications right now. There's a, a lot of research being done into the fact that the moon is rusting. So uh, the surface of the moon, uh, you know, under microsco microscopic examination, the naked eye hasn't seen it, but they they're seeing what they thought was shadow the hue was changing and they've begun to examine what they now understand is the moon is rusting very slowly uh, but uh, you know wouldn't it be interesting if the moon literally turned blood red like you know as as the scripture is saying um, I'm waiting for the things to happen in such a supernatural way that um, you know naturally supernatural that the Lord gets the glory Right. You know, when um, Mount St. Helen erupts and it creates its own Grand Canyon in a matter of hours, carving out through it, when it creates fossils in seconds that that can be carbon dated and they date to be thousands of years old, you know, spark plugs that were fossilized, literally, uh, you know, dating them at thousands of years old. So, you know, it's just interesting when we see God confounding humanity in a supernatural way. Natural circumstances, but you can see the supernatural hand of God. As Isaiah predicts the destruction of the Nile Delta, and, and they mock the scripture for 1,300 years until the Russians convince the people of Egypt to build the Aswan Dam. And as a result, the silt does not travel down through and deposit in the delta the way it had previously, and the delta, be the, uh, the delta begins to die. And that isn't happening quickly enough for God, so he allows them to be inspired to build the upper Aswan Dam, which finishes the job, wipes out the Nile Delta and its life. Uh, the things described by Isaiah coming true, the snails, in the reeds and the withering of the reeds and uh, how the fertility of the land surrounding the delta is all being destroyed. It's a remarkable uh, consideration. There are other elements in there. They mock the idea that Pontius Pilate had existed because he wasn't recorded anywhere in Roman history. And with the drying up of the Aswan Dam and the Nile Delta, the sand dunes that were built up every year by the Nile Delta began to blow away. And I believe it was in 1973, uh, two pilots in a helicopter were flying back into Israel and they saw a big horseshoe shape in the desert. And they went in and excavated and it was uh, uh, accessory and maritime. There was a huge uh, amphitheater that they had not previously found. They excavate the whole thing. And there on the side of the entrance is a huge plaque to Pontius Pilate. You know, so, so you know, I like it when... The, the supernatural things just slap humanity in the face and uh, make a very undeniable statement. So 
the sun and the moon uh, will be uh, you know changed into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming in the great of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's always been the case, right? I mean, nothing, nothing changes there. God's spirit will cause people to call upon the name of the Lord. So back in Acts chapter 2 with this concept, men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him, in your midst, as you yourselves also know, right? Remember, Nicodemus comes, and then it's it's significant. It's sometimes missed, but when Jesus asked that question, are you the ruler of the Jews? When the Greek uses a definite article like that, it's very, very significant. I always use New York as the example. If I ask you, have you seen a big apple? Right, that leaves it as, yeah, I mean, Wolf Rivers are like, you know what I'm saying? They're big, man. You know, if I say to you, have you seen the Big Apple? You almost inherently know. I'm talking about New York City, right? The Big Apple. And so it is, right? When the definite article is used, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the ruler of the Jews? He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is the senior member of their highest court. And he comes and says, we know. Who's we? Right? You got a mouse in your pocket? We know. He's saying, we know. The Sanhedrin. We know you are sent from God because no one could do the works that you do unless he had been sent by God. So so in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we have the confession, right? The, the, The holistic confession Uh, from the mouth of Nicodemus, that the Sanhedrin knows Jesus is from God. Think about that. From that point forward, as they oppose him and plot against him, Nicodemus unfortunately makes the confession, we know you're from God. Think about how rebellious that group is from that point forward, if they know who Jesus is. So here, Peter just slams them uh, with that statement. Uh, of you, you have, you know who Jesus was by his evidence of miracles. I'll, I'll, I'm already bouncing around a lot, so I'll just go one more time. Right, the the the, the Levitical law says it's so interesting to me that when a leper is cleansed from his leprosy, that he's supposed to go to the priest and offer himself for examination and they isolate him for a week and then they re-examine him and if he's pronounced clean then he has to bring two doves to them in order to be restored into society restored into his family restored into their religion he has to bring two doves an earthen vessel and a wooden stake and in bringing that the priest takes the two doves from him, he puts one of the doves inside the earthen vessel. He takes the wooden stake and he kills the dove inside the earthen vessel. He takes the blood he, uh, and, and he does that over running water. It has to be done over running water. He then takes the dead dove and the blood and he pours from the earthen vessel the blood out upon the second dove and releases it into freedom. Right? Uh, Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, symbolized by the dove descending upon Jesus in, in bodily form. The spirit symbolized by the bird, Jesus, 
you know, we say this earthen vessel, right? You came from dust, you'll return to dust. Uh, we, we are made from dirt, right? The earth of the ground. God made man. The spirit of God placed in an earthen vessel. Killed with a wooden stake, a cross. Overrunning water. Symbol of the blood. Symbol of the word. His blood poured out upon our spirit. Granting us freedom. That law was on the books for 1,500 years. It was never used one time. Jesus Christ shows up, heals the leper, and says, go and show yourself to the priests, right? If you're thinking of those who were, you know, Naaman, cured of leprosy in the Old Testament, Naaman was a Syrian. He didn't go to the priests, right? Uh, so now Jesus is on the scene. They've got a law in the books. It's almost like the priests have probably tucked that away somewhere, like we'll never use that, Right? Once you get leprosy, death sentence, no coming back. And now, now a leper shows up, says, I was healed. How in the world were you healed? Jesus of Nazareth healed me. No kidding. Well, let's go through the ceremony. I'll have to get the scroll out. And, you know, and then the next one shows up. And you're like, how were you healed? Jesus of Nazareth. You know, by the time the third or fourth is showing up, you're going, let me guess. Jesus of Nazareth, right? As a sign to you, to the priesthood, very direct confrontation to the religion of the Jews. Jesus is there demonstrating his power. Yeah, he's demonstrating his power to everyone, right? 5,000, let's all have lunch. He's handing out, you know, sardines and English muffins to everybody in the whole process. And everybody eats to the point like Thanksgiving where you're glutted and you can't breathe anymore. And you're wishing you'd worn your sweatpants that day. You know, it's, it, that's how much they ate. And they take up 12 baskets full, a huge amount of food left over. Okay. Jesus is demonstrating to everybody, but he's very specifically touching that priesthood, you know, with the blind, with the sick, with the demon possessed, Right, specifically healing on the Sabbath, as they have great questions about. It. You ever wonder why he spit in the dirt and then made mud? Right, because it was against the Levitical law to spit on the dirt on the Sabbath day, because you might plow a little row with your spit drop, and now you've labored by plowing a row. You could spit on a rock anywhere you liked. But you could not spit on the dirt. Jesus probably like looked around. If you've been to Israel, there's a lot of rocks, man. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, there's some dirt right there. You know what I'm saying? Let me spit right there. He's creating controversy with them. He's confronting them. Here, uh, these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. You know this. You know this to be the case. What, who am I talking to here? Are you guys paying attention? Is what he's saying? You know these things. So take Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, right, this, that is to say this was no accident in, uh, from any direction. Jesus wasn't just railing along in his ministry and was suddenly like, wait a minute, crucifixion? Whoa, you know, I, I wrong turn at Albuquerque. 
You know, he 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 knew what he was doing. God knew what he was doing. He orchestrated these circumstances. It wasn't like things were going great, and then well, along comes Judas. You know, no, God had a plan in this whole process. He knew how this was going to unfold. He, taken with lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up. Now that's a, a significant. It's a very significant doctrinal verse, whom God raised up. I would encourage you to make note of John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Oh, well, wait a minute. Did God raise him up, or did Jesus raise him up? And the answer is, class, yes, right? Exactly. You know, so for anybody that struggles with this concept, and lastly, right, well, was it the Holy Spirit, or was it Jesus, or was it the Father? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, the Holy Spirit worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God the Father raised him up. God the Holy Spirit raised him up. God the Son raised him up. That's how that took place. Jesus is God, right? If you have any struggle with that, stop wondering. The scripture is very, very clear, and we'll hit it one more time before we're done. But verse 23, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that she, he should be held. For David says concerning him, so this is now David and we're, we're told that this is prophecy and that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he said these things. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. And there's a great discussion about what is the difference between Sheol, Hades, or Hades, or hell, or lake of fire, or outer darkness. That's an entirely different study. I want to just get to the point. Hades here is uh, spoken of in one of two ways. It, it literally just means the grave or the place of the dead. Right, it isn't referring to the fiery hell and torment. Okay, um, even the Apostles' Creed used to say that Jesus descended into the fires of hell. Okay, we have false teachers in the Word of Faith movement. Uh, Joyce Meyer being one of them, who says that Jesus descended into the fires of hell and was tormented by demons for three days. Until the Holy Spirit, she goes as far as to say that Jesus lost the Holy Spirit at the cross, became just a human being, descended into hell, was tormented by the fire and by the demons in hell. And then God sent his Holy Spirit, this is her teaching, sent her, his Holy Spirit to Jesus in hell where he received the Spirit. He was born again and then ascended back to earth. Okay, I'm profoundly false teachings. And I can give you a long list of her other false teachings if you're interested. So Luke chapter 23, verse 43. 
specifically says, Jesus said to him, the thief on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus died and entered paradise. That's, that's where he was. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was in the presence of God when he died, when he passed away. He didn't go into hell. So this, this place that David is speaking of is simply the grave. Right, His body was in the grave for three days and three nights. And it was specifically three whole days and three whole nights. That's you know, why it was probably, you know, Good Wednesday, not Good Friday when Jesus passed away. So anyway, so back to verse 27, nor will I allow your Holy One to see corruption, rot, decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And that's that guidance back to life and uh, the eternal life and the presence of life that God intended and the joy that comes from that. Verse 29, Peter's still speaking, and I'll just pause right here and make the point. Look, the purpose of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues was to get all of these people to pay attention to this sermon. It was not so that they could all walk away going, boy, I hope I get to speak in tongues. It wasn't what it was about at all. It was for the purpose of capturing their attention so they could hear this deeply convicting message and surrender their lives to Christ. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see Christ. Men and brethren, verse 29, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's in the ground. He's decomposed. David experienced those things. So clearly David wasn't speaking of himself is what he's saying. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, would rise up, uh, raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus was raised up of which we are all witnesses. Jesus Christ came back to life. It is if, if you're like me and you want to study the critics so that you can sort of beat them up, then you know watch Discovery Channel and National Geographic and all these different things and, and you know learn their stupidity so that you can mock it. Uh, but if you're you know tuning in because they've you know claimed to have discovered Jesus' tomb and you're actually intrigued with the idea of, wow, no kidding, maybe they found Jesus' tomb. Like, just shut it off. It's just a waste of your time. You'd be better off reading your Bible, walking the dog, baking cookies, than spending that. It's just such a waste of time. So, uh, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you, the patriarch. He's dead, buried, his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn to him, with an oath that this uh, fruit of his body, according to the flesh, uh, he would raise up and sit on the throne, foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his soul was not left in age, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. John chapter 10, verse 17 says, 
Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Those two things coupled together is one of the greatest claims that Jesus Christ is God. Right? Verse 32, Jesus God has raised up. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, I'll raise myself up. He is God. Verse 34, uh, 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. God, he was raised and exalted to the right hand of God and now he's pouring this out, what you just experienced. For David did not ascend into the heavens but he says himself the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool that's baffling for the jewish listeners the realization of wait a minute god the father said to someone else lord capital l capital o capital r capital d he called him yahweh used his own name in reference to someone else and said, I will seat you at my right hand. We know Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, right? You know, John talking about being in heaven and turning around to see God seated on the throne. And what does he see? A lamb as though it had been slaughtered. That's only Jesus. Again, all these confirmations. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Adonai, Lord and Christ. He is the authority over all. You might want to document Acts chapter 1, verse 8 right there. You're familiar with it, hopefully, where Jesus, speaking to the apostles before any of this transpired, said, you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses, witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? Peter fails, denies Jesus Christ three times. End of John. Jesus comes to him, restores him, asks him three times. If you've never examined it before, uh, you need to hear this. If you've heard me talk about it before, I apologize for the repetition. He asks Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Peter does not say yes. He says, you know, we are friends, right? He will not say before the crucifixion, he said, I will, you know, if everybody else denies you, I'll die at your side. Unless a little girl asks me if I know you, in which case I will pronounce blasphemous curses upon myself, you know, of death. May God strike me dead if I know the man <laughs> sort of thing. Now, Jesus is saying, do you actually love me unconditionally? And he's saying, well, we're friends. Then feed my sheep. He asked him a second time, do you love me unconditionally? You know, like you boldly claimed before. And he says, well, you know, we're friends. Then feed my sheep. Then he asks him that third time, Peter, are we actually friends? He brings it down. And Peter weeps and says, Lord, you know all things. Meaning, I guess I really shouldn't be opening my big mouth right now. You know whether I'm going to be your friend tomorrow or not. I don't. 
here in this moment, surrounded by apostles eating breakfast with the Messiah. I could make bold claims. Under pressure, you know, emotional, social circumstances, who knows? I might crumble like I did last time. Jesus doesn't say at that point, well, then you're a loser. And you shouldn't be in the ministry. Why don't you go back to fishing? He says, well, feed my sheep. Right? Jesus restores him, gives him those three opportunities there. He was weak is my point. And now he's standing in front of a massive crowd of thousands. And he's convicting them and saying, you crucified the Messiah. You're the ones that did that. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you have received the Holy Spirit and the power. We often, it's, it is where we get the word dynamite, explosive power, but it's also where we get the phrase or the term dynamo. Some, some of us know that electronic apparatus and the way it develops energy, power, speed, you know, the dynamo. You're weak now. You've failed. You've fallen on your face. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit and receive dynamic power that will cause you to be capable, we say, witness, of being a martyr, of being, of even sacrifice. You will have the power to even sacrifice your own life for Jesus Christ, right? Peter had made the claim, I will die at your side, and then wilts, Right? Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the power. Do you feel like that sometimes? Where you should have opened your mouth. You should have said something. You should have spoken to your coworker. You should have. What's lacking is the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be baptized in the Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to even strengthen us enough to open our mouths and say what we need to say. You'll be my witnesses. Verse 37. And then when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Isn't that what we always want to hear? You preach to people and they go, "Mm, who cares? You were really hoping they'd go, oh, what am I supposed to do? Oh, the Holy Spirit has to work on both sides. The Holy Spirit has to attract these people into himself, and then he has to empower the circumstances within the attraction, and then he has to raise up his minister with the power to speak the correct words so that it will pierce the heart and make people repent. We don't have the ability to do those things. We do not have the ability to do those things within ourselves. We need You want revival? right? You want you know, outpouring, you you want awakening in your community, the Holy Spirit's going to be the one that does that. As long as we're like, I, I'll do this. I just rented a tent and we're going to mow that field and we'll park the cars over here and we'll have a revival. God says, go ahead, man. Let's see what you can do. And usually the results are very, very low. Lots of people sign the cards. Very few hearts converted. Very, very few hearts converted. They are pierced to the heart, cut to the heart. And what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, right? Metanoia, remember that? Change your mind. 
and as a result, turn around with your whole life. Go the opposite direction you were going. And that's, that's literally what that means. It's U-turn. I mean, repentance is a U-turn. The direction you were going, turn around, go the opposite direction. Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord your God will call. You will receive the Holy Spirit. There's lots of discussion about, well, are there various stages of receiving the Holy Spirit? Because I want to be baptized in the Spirit. I prayed a prayer. You know, I, I had an emotional experience. Others say I didn't have an emotional experience. Uh, but, you know, did I receive Christ? Did I receive the Holy Spirit? Well, this assures us that we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you repent and you're baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I didn't speak in tongues, right? Well, what did we study? Do all speak in tongues? No, right? Do all prophesy? No, right? You know, no, nobody, again, wants to claim the gift of helps. You know, I just like to help. You know, that, that's listed, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts of helps. You know, just to help, literally, you know, change the diapers and empty the trash and sweep and, you know, help. But, but everybody wants a gift that's vocal so that they can be recognized. Uh, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, the uh, verse I quoted to you earlier of be not drunk with wine, wherein such is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is be being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how it's written in the Greek. It's not a one-time thing. You don't you don't go. Oh well, I prayed a prayer and I spoke in tongues and so now I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, if you hadn't noticed, your neighbors around you will tell you you are a cracked pot, okay? And you leak, you leak. Uh, we need to be continuously refilled, constantly, incessantly, daily. Be being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. We see the apostles asking for it. We see them being filled again and again. Well, there are at least three times where these men are filled with the Holy Spirit again that we're aware of in the Scripture. Well, it's not a one-time thing. We need that continuous refilling. Verse 40, and with many other words, uh, forgive me, you guys, I'm going to go a little long with this because I think it's important, not tremendously, but just a few things to point out. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Quite a sermon that he just delivered. And then with many other words, he convinced. And Paul continued until midnight, right? until Eutychus fell asleep, fell out of the third story window and died. You know, and now the modern church is like, no, shorter. That's what we got to do, shorter. You know, this hour-long sermon is terrible. We got to get down to four, 20, 15 minutes is what we need to do. Not according to the scripture. With many other words, uh, you know, he uh, uh, taught them. Uh, verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And those who did not gladly receive his word probably went away grumbling. 
right? This isn't God's magic wand where he just waves it over the crowd and everybody falls down and they stand up and go, I'm a Christian. No, this is choice. God is empowering everything that he can, but he doesn't ever violate man's free will. You can choose to reject God. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. At the issuance of the law, Mount Sinai, <laughs> 2,000 people died. Here, give the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people come to life. It's a remarkable thing, the contrast between what the law does versus what the Spirit does. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. That's the model for the church right there. You want to know how to build the church? You, you, you know, church growth movement? That's it right there. Without interruption, no breaks, continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. You know, Oliver was quoting statistics uh, from Barna Research this morning, and those who considered themselves, that Barna always allows the interviewee to define themselves, consider themselves <coughs> to be devout Christians, attend church as many as two or three times a year. That's the, you know, their own definition of what it means to be a devout Christian. Well, they're not Islamic. They're not Buddhists, right? They're going to a Christian church. It has a cross. That's the way they're looking at it. I am Christian. I am not some other religion. You know, if it came to religious things, I would do it in a Christian setting. That's the way they're looking at things, and that's why our nation is falling apart. They're not doing it steadfastly. You know, in the apostles' doctrine, apostles' doctrine, that's the word of God. Significantly, it's the Old Testament. The church is, you know, today only widely interested in the New Testament, and hopefully if you give it to them in the most watered-down, you know, not even translation, paraphrase that you can find, just give it to them from the message or something. You know what I'm saying? Don't do, please, just, you know, the children's living Bible, could we do that? Just something I can just you know, drink easily and not have to digest at all and, and make it about 15 minutes, you know, less would be fine. You know, lots of music and a short little message. And, you know, I, I, really what we're looking for is a sermonette, you know, Chuck Smith was the one that said sermonettes produce Christianettes, you know, I just, just miniature versions of, what should be. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Communion, fellowship, uh, God's word, prayer. Steadfast, unbroken, continuously, con constantly. Then fear came upon every soul and many signs, or excuse me, many wonders, excuse me, and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Sounds wonderful. It was a diabolical plan. 
They de immediately developed this concept. We saw Jesus ascend to a, into heaven. The angels told us he will come back in like manner. So Jesus is coming back any minute to establish his kingdom on earth. We'll all be leaders in that kingdom. We'll conquer the world. It'll be a wonderful thing. So we, I mean, you know, really only got a few minutes. So, you know, let's all gather together. They sold everything, you know, and just lived together communally. And a whole bunch of mooches that surrounded Christianity went, went, well, wait a minute. So if you convert to Christianity, you get to quit your job and get free meals and housing? Sign me up. And they did. And Christianity withered. And they were in desperate need. There was great generosity. And for a brief period of time, there was great wealth. But it was almost immediately consumed. And then the church had to start putting stipulations on and pushing people out and putting criteria on who was going to receive from the church. And then you come <coughs> to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 14, where Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints at Jerusalem, who have no more money, who are starving to death, because they all sold what they had, they lived together, they used up their monies, the mooches came in, sucked them dry. Now the persecution comes. All the fakes leave. Only the sincere Christians who are willing to sacrifice their lives are left, and they can't get jobs. They get no help. They're homeless. They're in the street. The church is destitute. The church is desperate. It works well to disperse the church. They leave Jerusalem, and they go find jobs. Right, The diaspora, the scattering of seeds. The church leaves and goes and gets what it needs <coughs> from other locations. Paul here is taking up collections. Now concerning collections for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week. Once again, indicating that the church was gathering for corporate worship on Sunday. Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, and that there be no collection when I come. I'm not going to pass the hat when I arrive there. It needs to already be collected. When I come, whomever you approve by letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. I read all of that to make the point that there's great accountability in the handling of the finances within the church. They collect publicly. People know how much is collected. Designated people handle it. Paul is saying, I don't even have to be the one. You can choose your delegates. If you want me to be part of that delegation, I will travel with the funding and take it to them. But it doesn't have to be me. The church is in need. So, continuing daily, daily, with one accord in the temple, corporate worship, for those that want to act like, oh, no, the only church God endorsed was house churches. Oh, yeah, they moved to house churches when it became illegal to gather together and they were going to beat you and jail you and kill you. They started meeting in houses privately. House church is awesome and should be endorsed. But there are those within house church organizations that condemn corporate worship. These people were meeting daily in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. So they had home fellowships. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all people because they weren't jerks. They weren't religious weirdos. They were spreading the gospel everywhere they went, but they were doing it in a way that was appealing and they were doing it in a way that proved their character. They weren't gossips. They worked hard. They did all things proper so that the community loved them and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added daily those who were being saved. Not <coughs> the church growth movement, not their economic plan, not their dynamic worship team, right? Not their smoke and mirror and light show. The Lord added to them daily those that were being saved. That should be our church growth plan, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. That's how we grow as individuals and with one another. So that uh, completes Acts chapter 2. We'll pick up with Acts chapter 3 next time we're together. So will you stand and we'll pray? Father God, we are again very grateful for the way that you work in our lives. I pray that these things would sink down deeply into our hearts, that we would embrace them, that we would share them with others, that it would create a fruitfulness for you. Lord, be it that the numbers increase or the strength increases. I pray that this message would cause your kingdom to prosper. Lord, prospering in the sense of spiritual richness. Bless us, watch us, keep us, protect us, use us. Lord, pour your spirit out that we would be dynamic witnesses for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.